throughout this morning, uh, keep David and Tracy in your prayers there at Meridian. Uh, he's presenting the message uh, in Philemon, and uh, he's going to give a report of uh, the church here. So just pray that uh, the body is encouraged there, and they're blessed by the report, and that uh, David honors God through his message. Um, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 9. And uh, being in the Old Testament, I probably was taught, like 99% of us were taught about the uh, Old Testament, um, that you just need to be like. Uh, you need to be like Joseph. You just need to work hard and be faithful, and God's going to promote you in your work. Uh, you need to be like Noah and stay the course and don't lash back at the persecution. And if you do that, you'll have the last laugh. I was actually taught that in Lawton at Central Baptist. Uh, be like David and have faith in God and you'll overcome your giants. And be like Nehemiah and just focus on what's in front of you and you can accomplish anything. But we know that that is a man-centered view of scriptures. We know that the accounts that we read in the Old Testament are about God and His glory, about His holiness, and about the coming Redeemer. That's why I love it, that while our church is going through Genesis, David will always remind us of Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God. Because from Genesis to Revelation, that's who it's about. It's never been about us. It's never been what we need to be like. It's always been about God. 2 Samuel chapter 9 is no exception uh, to this. Before we focus on this passage, we need to lay a background. Um, I like Bob Ross. Uh, I'll go on Twitch, and uh, it's an app, and I'll watch the Bob Ross channel. And if you've ever watched Bob Ross, you, ever, you, you notice that before he puts down the creeks and the rocks and the grass and the happy little trees, it would be completely out of context if he never laid the big broad strokes in the background first. And if you ever watched him paint, you at times would think, what is he creating? And then eventually you have that, ah, moment. And that's my prayer, that while I'm speaking, and you're wondering, okay, Kevin, reel it in, where are you going? That eventually you get that aha moment. <clears throat> this is about Christ and what he has done, and how the narrator of this passage paints this beautiful picture of God's mercy and love. We know the story of David. Shepherd, turned hero, mighty warrior, running fugitive, became king, dancing in the streets, Bathsheba, Nathan the prophet confronting him, plans for the temple, his son Solomon, and then the noted bloodline that the Messiah is going to come from. Pretty amazing life, wouldn't you say? But what's more amazing is God and how he used this fallible, sinful, selfish man to paint us a picture of the reason why that as a church we do something every Sunday when we meet as a body. And we also have Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan. And Jonathan was the son of King Saul. But just put a pin in that 
we'll come back to him in a little bit. Now, back in the day, David and Jonathan were very close. Their friendship went beyond BFFs. Uh, you could say that their love for each other went as deep as brothers, and I would probably even say more like twins. During David's time in Saul's court, David and Jonathan had made a covenant with each other. This covenant was what David was thinking about when we start in this passage in chapter 9. The story of this covenant between David and Jonathan began back in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 through 5, when the two were seen together for the first time. Now, this was right after David killed Goliath, and Saul had David brought to him and asked him who his father was. Verse 18 says, As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor, even his sword, his bow, and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people, and it was also in the sight of Saul's servants. At this first meeting, the particulars of their covenant were not shared. Though Jonathan's gestures in this verse, in verse 4, of giving up his outer clothes, his sword, his bow, and his belt, suggest that he made himself David's vassal, even conceding to him his right for succession to the king. We know that Saul becomes jealous of David's success and feels threatened and spends the most of his remaining life trying to kill David. That brings us to 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 12 through 17. This is right before David fleeing from the house of Saul. The passage says, And Jonathan said to David, The Lord God of Israel, be witness. I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day. And behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not sin and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan. And more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die, and do not cut off your steadfast love for my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, and Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Jonathan, praying that God would be with David, while acknowledging that God is no longer with his father, appeals to David to remain loyal to his descendants. Right before this, David asked Jonathan to discover Saul's intentions toward him during the next day moon, uh, new moon festivities. And they developed a plan for Jonathan to signal David at their meeting place. If you remember, it's shooting the arrow in the field if it went before and after. Well, at the festival meal, Saul, angered by David's absence, throws a spear at his son Jonathan, who then gets up and heads out to meet David. 
At that meeting, they reaffirmed their covenant in 1 Samuel 20, 42. It says, and J Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be with me and you, and between your offspring and my offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Now that was David. What about Mephibosheth? <clears throat> well, he's first introduced in 2 Samuel 4. He was five years old on the fateful day when his father Jonathan and his grandfather King Saul died in a great defeat on Mount Gilboa. The news of this disaster reached his home. So Mephibosheth's nurse picked him up out of haste and fled with him. But in the whole process, Mephibosheth fell and he was crippled in both feet. That was in verse 4 of that passage. The deformity marked his entire life. Mephibosheth was defined by his disability, and any time that we think of Mephibosheth, we always think, and he was lame in both feet. We also have to understand that Mephibosheth completely lost all of his inheritance that day. After the murder of his uncle Ishbosheth, who had contested David's throne, Mephibosheth seemed to have gone into a, short, a sort of an exile within Israel. And when David sought him, he was living in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar, far from David's uh, capital city of Jerusalem. Now, the name Lodabar means no pasture, which suggests that not only did Mephibosheth lose his family's land, he also lived in a barren and desolate region. So, our background now is painted. And now we can focus on the story of kindness and mercy. So, if you haven't yet, please uh, turn to 2 Samuel 9. And please keep in mind as you do that when we go through this passage, this is not another be like. Okay, This was never meant to show that David was being nice to another person. It's much deeper than that. What we see being expressed here is the covenant love of God. At the beginning of chapter 9, we know that David is reigning over all of Israel. His enemies defeated, and his kingdom is established. Chapter 8, the previous chapter before 9 there, gives an account of everyone that he's defeated, and he's finally brought peace within the region. And so after doing this was a time of reflection. And so he sets and he reflects. And he poses a question in verse 1. Is there anyone left of the house of Saul? Such a strange and direct question, don't you think? Not really. After all, he's done a tremendous job of eradicating all the enemies and potential threats to the throne. And it wouldn't be surprising to think that here David is wondering if there's any other threats out there when it comes to his throne. I mean, the house of Saul was in a long war with the house of David, told to us in 2 Samuel chapter 3. And when the kingdom switches rulers, and the ruler that switches is not part of the family, the new ruler will execute any family from the last rule that is a threat to the throne. Just what they did. But when King David asked this question, he wasn't wondering if there was any more threats. No. Instead, he wanted to find somebody an undeserving somebody to whom that he could show the kindness of God to an undeserving member of the house of Saul. 
we also need to understand that this question did not come out of the blue. He was thinking about the covenant between him and Jonathan that we read back in 1 Samuel chapter 20. And if you remember what I read, it kind of went like this. Jonathan said to David, listen, if I'm still alive after all this, when all this shakes out and I'm still alive, show me, David, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. Be kind to me. Please, just be kind to me with the kindness of God, the covenant love of God. Show me that so I may not die. And furthermore, that you would not cut off your steadfast love to me. Now, David had not forgotten that he made that promise and now sits wondering if there's anybody that he could display this kindness to. Verse 2. Now, there was a servant in the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called, uh, they called him to David. And the king said, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. Now, we see in this verse that they do find a man after investigating the servant, a servant in the house of Saul. Uh, and his name was Ziba. And so he asked Ziba, you know, is there anyone live left from the house of Saul? And Ziba said, there's one. Now, Mephibosheth is a lot older now. Time has elapsed. But time has not eroded David's desire to express this covenant love to Jonathan's family. Now, when, Jonathan, now when David is given the news, he doesn't waver in this. He doesn't reconsider. I mean, when he got the information, he could have pondered it. He could have thought, yeah, that was a long time ago. Um, things were different between, or different between me and Jonathan now. I mean, after all, he's dead, right? Times have changed. You know, all the things that we're tempted to say in our promises, in our covenants. I mean, think about the covenant of marriage. It was such a long time ago. Things have changed. I've changed. We're different now, but not David. If David was operating based off of his feelings, there's no telling what he would have said. But the reason that he poses the question that he poses is because he's pre prepared to pursue for no obvious reason than, than the fact that he promised. I promised. And because I promised, I'm going to seek this person out. Hence the question he asks. Verse 4, the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said, to the king, he's in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Now notice the action he then took. He follows up on this, and he wants to know in verse 4, wh well, where is he? And Ziba, of course, said that he's in the house of Maker, gives him the directions. He was more than likely dependent, Mephibosheth, on the other people in that area because of his disability. If you look in the Old Testament, if they were lame, where did you find them? At the gate begging. And so here is this heir to the throne from a regime past, and now he's completely dependent on people. You know, if I was king, I would want nice people around me. I mean, that's just me. 
I would want to make sure that my entourage was a good group of guys. People who, who could contribute to my kingdom and my rule and benefit me. I mean, that would be standard, I would think. I mean, it would, it would be fair, wouldn't it? What kind of king seeks out a cripple and puts him in his entourage? Why would he do this? What would this individual have to offer to King David? Nothing. I mean, not very much. You see, this is not about being nice. This is about the loving kindness of God painted in this amazing picture in this incident in David's life. Remember that love always takes the initiative. Verse 5, Then the king, then king David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, to Lodabar. And verse 6, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And what Mephibosheth anticipated, man, on this supervised journey to meet the king. Remember, he's being escorted to the king now. We can only speculate. After all, he would have known that David would have done a really good job of removing any potential threats to his kingship. And he is from that lineage that could possibly have been that threat. Jonathan was his dad. King Saul was his grandfather, and Saul was the enemy of David. We would not be able to tell, he would not be able to tell David, Sir, I, I come from a good lineage. Uh, my background is terrific. I could appeal to that. No, he couldn't. He would want to really not make much of that. Furthermore, he has no position of power or anything at all. But still, here he comes. No surprise that he falls before David and he pays him homage. In other words, his approach to David was respectful and fearful. Now, I want you to see something that is very interesting. Up until this encounter, we read in verses 4 through 5. The dialogue went like this. The end of verse 2, the king said. Verse 3, the king said. At the end of that verse, they said to the king. Verse 4, the king said. And again, they said to the king. The king, the king, the king. But if you notice in verse 6, when Mephibosheth shows up, the narrator switches to, and David said. We understand, we need to understand a very important transition here. What is taking place in this conversation is something beyond simply a king to the subject. David is addressing Mephibosheth. This is personal. Verse 6, And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. The fear <laughs> must have been coursing through Mephibosheth's body at this point. I'm a dead man. He had to have been thinking that. And it was like David was reading his mind, verse 7, and David said, do not fear. Mephibosheth, I don't want you to be afraid. And I'll tell you why you don't need to be afraid. 
in verse 7, this is the heart of the fulcrum of the passage. And David said to him, do not fear, I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. In other words, what you will be able to enjoy as a result of my kindness to you is not on the count of anything that's in you or what you can do. It's on the count of a covenant that I made with your father a long time ago that you knew nothing about. It was the covenant that David made with Jonathan that lay behind the assurance that he now gives Mephibosheth. And that action is followed by provision that he made. I will restore to you all the land of, your fa- of, of Saul, your father. He's a crippled man living in an obscure region of the country, completely dependent upon everyone else. He had nothing to his name. He was broke. He was desolate living in hiding from the king, having no intention, no desire to see the king, and then one day a knock at the door. Yes, the king is requesting your presence. I'm dead. And he comes before the king, and with one decree from David, he's a wealthy man. All the things his father and grandfather enjoyed are now his. But the best is yet to be said. David says, And you shall eat at my table always. This is more than the bare necessities or even being wealthy. This is about adoption. He will be at the table where David's sons sit. He is made part of David's family. In church, this is what adoption truly looks like. And look at Mephibosheth's response in verse 8. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? He doesn't say, Finally, someone who has some common sense. Someone finally woke up. I am so glad you realize I'm so important. No. The complete opposite of that. He's astonished. This, sir, this doesn't make any sense. Why would you do this for a dead dog like me? You say, well, wow, Kevin, this is really self-degrading. Yeah, and he meant it. He's saying here, I am at the bottom of the pile so why in the world would you ever do this? And let me, let me just stop right there for a second. The reason some of us do not come to faith in Christ is because we have never faced the fact that by our very nature, we are at the very bottom of the pile. We are lame, we are des- desolate, we are sinful, we are crippled, and we are diseased. So the message comes along to us in the line that you know what? God is looking for some really nice people. And, and you're a nice person, and you're from Pleasant Valley, obviously. And so uh, you have a really good chance of being welcomed into his eternal kingdom. No, not for a nanosecond. The opposite is the case. The reaction of Mephibosheth is the right reaction to the covenant love of God. My God, my Lord, what love pays so dearly. Church, this is amazing grace. 
what we see here is an unfailing love that's represented, that's pointing to the gospel. What Mephibosheth expected, he did not receive, and what he received, he didn't deserve. Look at the last part of verse 11. So Mephibosheth ate at, the, at David's table like one of the king's sons. <laughs> In the same way that David showed mercy to Mephibosheth, God has mercy for us sinners because of his covenant promises in Christ. We see this in verse 1 through 7 where David speaks, showing kindness for Jonathan's sake. And it is because God saves sinners in covenant grace that David's merciful summons of fetching, so to speak, of Mephibosheth is such a beautiful picture of how Christ saves. Walter Chanley elaborates on this. We are broken and maimed by the fall. We live in a kingdom of Adam's successor, Jesus Christ. Though we are his servants, we're not too eager to come before him. Then one day the messenger arrives, the master calls you, we are told, and he has sought us out and he has sent for us. We did not take the first steps to meet us. Before we even imagined speaking to Christ, he thought about us. But how can we speak to him? What can we say? We deserve to die. We have nothing to offer him. We are afraid of him. But not only David's mercy shows treatment, not only does David's merciful treatment of Mephibosheth so the covenant shows the covenant grace of which God saves us. But the blessings that David bestows on him also corresponds to the Christian's adoption through the union with Christ. Speaking in theological terms, David's grace for Mephibosheth was not exhausted in just justification. David did more than pardon Jonathan's son and accept him into his fellowship. David also granted Mephibosheth a status otherwise reserved for David's own sons. This is the same blessing that God offers us through faith in Christ. John 1.12 proclaims that to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Again, adoption. The 1689 Baptist Confession, chapter 12, verse, or, uh, section 1, beautifully states the doctrine of adoption when it reads, God has granted that all those who are justified would receive the grace of adoption. In, and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ, by this they are counted among the children of God and enjoy the freedom and privileges of that relationship. They inherit his name receive the spirit of adoption, have access, access to the throne of grace with boldness, and are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. We are given compassion, protected, provided for, and disciplined by Him as a Father. Yet we are never cast off, but are sealed for the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. 2 Samuel chapter 9 does not use the language of adoption since it wasn't a formal practice in the Old Testament Israel. But the reality of it describes it is precisely in line with that. What happened is in line with what we know of adoption. First, when Mephibosheth fell on his face before David and named himself a mere servant, 
David raised him up and granted him a place at the table of David's family. He shall eat at my table always. So, Mephibosheth ate at the table of David like one of the king's sons. Though he had feared that David's wrath would make him a prisoner, Mephibosheth instead received the grace of adoption that restored him as a prince. A child is not truly adopted, a child is not truly adopted unless he full, is fully embraced by his parents' heart. And God extends his loving embrace to all his children in Christ. This is why Paul writes in Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Second, in adopting Mephibosheth into his family, David restored the royal inheritance that he had lost. David's decreed, David decreed, I will restore to you all the land you saw your, from, uh, saw your father. To Ziba, the king said, all that belongs to Saul and to all his house, I have given you to your master's grandson. Paul assures each of God's children that you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, an heir through God. The third privilege that David extended to Mephibosheth was that of a father's faithful care and provision. We see this care in the arrangements that David made for Mephibosheth's future in verse 9 and 10. And then King David called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. And Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. This large number of workers suggests that Mephibosheth got a really big piece of land. And this would be, and he would receive more than an ample income for the rest of his life. Being children of God does not relieve us from the obligation of work, but it does promise that God's faithful provision of what we need according to his will. It would not be surprising if Mephibosheth found this hard to believe that David would, am, would admit him to such a table of mercy. Especially given all the reasons why David instead would despise him. The king assured him, however, of the certainty of his, of his gifts with the words, for the sake of your father Jonathan. Those words changed everything for Mephibosheth. In observing David's mercy to Mephibosheth, we should note that David actually performed more than his covenant promise. David promised not to cut off Jonathan's descendants, true, but in graciousness that honored the Lord, David offered much more than the son of his friend. Yet there were limits to what David could offer Mephibosheth. And we see that when the narrator concluded the chapter with now he was lame in both feet. Jonathan couldn't, or David couldn't fix that. What a w weird and odd way to end a chapter. That he was lame in both feet. We knew he was lame in both feet. 
but to end the chapter that way. Why finish this story of kindness and grace with a reminder of Mephibosheth's disability? The narrator did not want us to forget that Mephibosheth remained a pitiful figure. Despite the blessings of David and his adopting grace, he was still lame. Despite his fallen and crippled state, David still kept him in the family. And that leads us to the image of David and the family seating at the table to eat. Waiting. Family's around, but Mephibosheth isn't here yet. I mean, you know, because he's lame on both feet. And then they finally hear him coming. Maybe with a cane, crutches. And he finally makes it to the table. And they all sit down because the whole family is here now. And they eat. Don't be afraid. Eat at my table. Be like a son to me. Church, that brings us to this table. Setting together at a table carries strong connotations of friendship and fellowship between the participants at the meal. This institution is intended to give expression to the bond of fellowship that exists between Christ and his followers. Who even though we were unworthy servants and justly deserving of punishment and death, are nevertheless invited to share in a meal as children in the household of God. Why? The king fetched you. So here we are, spiritually crippled, with no service, no ability, no talent that we could offer God. But God makes us sons and daughters. We are in Christ. And that means that we are loved by God the Father because He has adopted us and now eat at His table. And when you come up here in a little bit and you take the bread and the juice and you ask yourself, what do I bring to this table? The answer? Your crippled, sinful nature. But praise God. By grace alone, through faith alone, the King has adopted you. Let's pray.